my verse, I chose Job 8, 7. Your beginnings may seem humble, so prosperous may your future be. And I chose this verse because I feel like I'm always trying to control my future in a way, rather it be like with grades or anything. And I feel like when I read this verse, it helps me to kind of feel like he takes over and he knows your future and he knows that it will be bright for you. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. It, it reminds you to show the love of God to all people and like especially those who also believe like it's nice to have that recognition that you know you have God and you have someone else there for you. Um, my verse is Jeremiah 29 11 uh, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord uh, plans for good and not evil um, plans uh, to give you a hope in the future and I love this verse because I know that my life is in his hands and that uh, gives me a great amount of peace and knowing that I don't have to worry about um, what I'm going to be doing tomorrow or today. Um, so yeah, I'm in good hands. So my verse is 2 Corinthians 12 9 which goes, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the reason that this is my favorite verse is it's just a good reminder of how God shines through my life through my weaknesses and that I don't have to be ashamed of my weaknesses, but it's through those weaknesses that God uses me to be a better person, a better follower, and a brother, a better brother in Christ. All right, hey, good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing this morning? I know we're in June. It's a little June gloomy today, but uh, good to see you all. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the worship pastor here, and uh, I don't get to share a whole lot of uh, scripture with you. Maybe I sing about it a lot of times, but uh, I don't get to share a whole lot of scripture with you, so I just feel really lucky to be sharing God's word with you. Um, a couple weeks back, someone stopped me in the lobby, and they said, hey, hey, when are you speaking again? When are you speaking again? I was so flattered. Oh, I think I'm going to speak in two weeks. Yeah, I really like you when you speak because you, you keep the message really short. So, so, and then he walked off, right? And so I just sit there, hmm, we'll see about that. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, it's great to be uh, just sharing God's word with my church family here this morning. And I pray that as we uh, just dig into God's word today, that uh, it would align your heart and that we would see God's heart behind every word that we uh, share. Let me just open up in word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we're so grateful that, Lord, that you are good and that you're an amazing God. And, Lord, no matter what season of life that we go through or maybe some of us that we have to endure, Lord, you are good. And, Lord, we're, we're, and we're so grateful to be serving in an amazing God. Father, um, this morning, God, I don't know where everyone's coming from, Lord, but I pray that, Lord, as, we, as you have drawn us here together, um, that as we hear your word, as we study your word, as we hear especially what the Apostle Paul has to say to us. Lord, help us to uh, go deep into your word, and at the same time, help us to examine our own heart as we uh, just learn about you and what you have to say to us. Lord, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, Lord, and Lord, help us just to be in your presence together. God, we thank you so much for this morning. It is in the name of Jesus we all prayed. Amen. 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 Hey, so a couple months back, uh, there was this movie that came out. It was a big, big 
Hollywood blockbuster. I don't know how many, I don't know if you've seen this film, but it's called Marvel's uh, Avengers Endgame. Have you have you seen that film? All right. Okay. Let me let me just do a a little guest here. How many of you have seen it one time? Okay. All right. How many of you have seen it twice already? Oh man, Pastor Dave. You have a lot of time in your hands. <laughs> How many of you have seen it three times? No. Wow. It's okay. You could be proud of that. Um, it, it's, it was a big blockbuster, and unfortunately, I have not seen it yet. I was told that in order for me to appreciate this film, I'd have to understand all the previous movies to get to the end game. I'm not a big Marvel follower. Uh, I'm not a big Marvel Universe guy, but I heard every movie is in sequence. In order for me to appreciate this film, I would have to have watched all the movies. All these movies. <laughs> Who's got time for that? Maybe Pastor Dave does, but uh, we, I would have to watch all of these films to get to the end game. That's why I haven't seen it, because I bet it was very intentional that they put the movie in the sequence, because every plot has a meaning for what's to come in the next movie. It's important for me to know how characters are developed in order for me to appreciate it. The development of the characters help us to appreciate the films and the results. The story behind each character helps me to appreciate who they are now. Today we are wrapping up uh, this series that we've been journeying through since Easter called Hashtag My Verse Series. And um, I'm just so honored to be able to finish the series uh, for our church. And this week as I was preparing the message, I was just walking around the lobby and I was looking at the MyVerse wall. I'm sure you've all seen it as you walked in uh, to church today. And as I was combing through all the verses that are out there, and I know Pastor Gary's been really encouraging us to go and look at these verses so that you could be encouraged. But I couldn't help but to wonder if there are stories behind these verses. I realized that there's a purpose behind everyone's verse. That every verse came from somewhere. When I read the verses that are familiar and maybe not so familiar to us, I couldn't help but to think that every verse has a story. There is a reason why you've written these words down. There must be a story behind the words that are placed in these walls. You see, I won't be able to believe you if you were to tell me that, the, that your favorite verse is Psalm 23 and there is no personal meaning behind it. When you write out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. There must be a reason why Psalm 23 is your favorite verse. Maybe you went through some difficult season of life, and these words brought healing. It rescued you. It was comforting to know that the Lord was actually your shepherd, you see these verses that you've written down and that we've studied throughout the weeks, it didn't come from a vacuum. I believe every one of you who wrote these verses down has a story. Well, this morning, I want to share with you my verse. And I chose this verse because it's a very, very popular verse. It's a verse probably everyone knows here. Many have memorized. Even non-Christians know of this verse. It's, it's kind of a pop culture thing. It was actually the top five verses that you've written down on the my verse wall. Can you guess what that is? It's Philippians 
4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a verse that is uh, widely used. We see it everywhere. We have our kids memorize them in Sunday school. We sing about it. We see it on t-shirts and apparels. It's just everywhere. And I noticed as I was studying this verse, I noticed that athletes love this verse. Something about this verse that's, that just makes athletes get pumped up. Right, we, fee, we see professional athletes like Tim Tebow here on the cover of to Illustrated, and he's got, what does he have under his eyes? Philippians 4.13. We see Steph Curry, and he's wearing his Under Armour uh, shoe sneakers, and he wrote out, I can do all things. If you lift weights, and if you go to the gym a lot, some gyms even write out the whole verse across their wall to attract their membership so that they could encourage people to get pumped up. I don't know how many of you are old, old enough to remember this, but um, in 1996, there was this incredible boxing match. It was a, it was a match between Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield. How many, how many remember that fight? It was, it was actually really epic. Um, from the moment these people walked out of the, uh, to the arena, I, I remember seeing Mike Tyson and his entourage. He was wearing all black, and he's walking out, and his crew was shouting, uh, Allah Akbar, which means God is great in uh, Arabic. And this, I think this is when he converted to Islam. And he just walks out and he just looks really tough, you know, and kind of intimidating. And on the other side, you see Evander Holyfield wearing all purple, walking out with worship music behind him, right, with his crew. And then if you look at his, his robe, it says Philippians 4.13. It was an epic fight. I think they went on to about 11 rounds and uh, Evander Holyfield actually beat Mike Tyson by a technical knockout. And I remember watching this in college with my buddies in their apartment, and it, the fight was so intense. It almost felt like it was a fight against good and evil. It felt like, a, like it was a spiritual battle, and we were so, so relieved when Holyfield won. Because, <laughs> you know, he was for God. Anyways, um, but I was thinking about this passage more and more, and I, I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if every time we recite this verse and we end up getting better at something? We become better athletes or just end up performing better? How about this? Wouldn't it be amazing if every time we recite this verse and we end up doing well in our relationships, in our work, somehow God would just give us these powers to overcome our insecurities do you think this is what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me? I wonder if Paul thought that we would all gain physical strength and power when we just call on the name of Jesus. I wonder if that was Paul's true intention in mind. Well, let's find out. Let's read verses surrounding this passage and uh, let's see what Paul really had intended for us to understand. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13. If you don't have your Bibles, we have uh, the Baywatch that you receive on your way in, or you could download our SBCC app to follow along the messages. <coughs> Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me. 
but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's just a quick background of the story, uh, of the, actually, uh, of the whole book of Philippians. Um, the book of Philippians is known as the book of joy. They, they call it the joyful letter. And uh, many believe that Paul wrote this while he was in prison in Rome as he was waiting to be tried by the Roman uh, authorities. And yet, Paul is able to see through the bars, literal bars, uh, though his circumstances were not the best, he saw a greater joy and gratitude. Just a couple of years back, our church, we did a whole series on the book of Philippians. So if you are interested in that topic, in that book, I encourage you to go check out our YouTube page. There's an interesting observation here. When we read the first two verses, verses 10 and 11, the tone of Paul's words do not sound like a man who is in prison. When he starts off the sentence, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, it doesn't sound like a person who's actually suffering. In fact, it sounds like a person actually, who's actually doing well for himself and just wanting to encourage others. It's like having that one friend who always takes you out to a good meal, who always encourages you, who always reminds you of God's blessings. And then later you find out that that person isn't doing all that better than you are. But you'd have never known it or guessed it by their outlook on life. Do you have friends like that in your life, in your circle? Someone who always treats you to a nice meal, but they themselves are not well off either. But all they want to do is just be a blessing to you and wanting nothing in return. That's how Paul sounds like in these verses. You see, Paul is a man who is content. In verse 11, Paul joyfully says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is basically saying, all my needs have been met. I'm good. I'm content. What does it mean to be content? What, is the, what does contentment look like, especially in this context? The word content used in this passage in the Greek is called autarkos. And let me just explain what that means. Let me just explain what autarkos means. It means when someone is sufficient for oneself, strong enough or possessing enough to no need aid or support. It's, it's, it's when someone is independent of external circumstances. It's when a person has no need for anything more in their life to make them feel satisfied. It's not referring to any uh, wealthy people who has everything and they just say, you know, I don't need any more. Or is it referring to someone who, uh, who has less, who can't afford much, and they are forced to be content because of their lack of resources? That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul's contentment is not circumstantial. In order for Paul to say with confidence, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he had to first understand the secret of his contentment. From our passage today, from our study today, I, I want to uh, share with you Four secrets of finding that contentment. So if you have your notes with you, will you write this down? The secret of contentment number one is what I call contentment is learned. 
Contentment is learned. Paul mentions in multiple times that he had learned to be content. When he talks about learning to be content, he's not referring to going to school for it or it's not a head knowledge for him, but learning to be content grows from the heart through real life situations and circumstances. It's about Paul learning to fix his eyes on Christ rather than what, what he needed at the moment. His need for external things were not his priorities. When we look at our lives today, we live in the most affluent of times. We live in a world where there's more to do, there's more, there's, uh, more places to go, there are more things to see, and easier means to get there. We, we have more things to buy with a simple click of a button. We live in the most entertained world that humanity has ever seen and experienced. And yet, for many of us, we are bored out of our minds, and we get frustrated. Look at our kids. As soon as you take that phone away from them, they don't know what to do with themselves. They freeze. And what am I supposed to do? Every time i in the car, my son's on the phone, I, when I take it away, he says, what am I supposed to do, Dad? Like, Look at the window. <laughs> Look at the billboards. We don't know what to do. Why? Because we keep chasing after our personal needs, and our focus ends up being on our needs more than a need of a savior. It's really a worship problem, isn't it? That this contentment is the result of misplaced worship. And sometimes we need to break that habit of searching for our needs in order for us to learn contentment. We need to break the worship of necessity, the worship of having more. We need to recalibrate our attention that draws us away from God. My son Jonah uh, has been playing basketball for about a good six years. Um, he's 13 now, and, um, he's, and he's very active in the AAU uh, scene. And um, he started playing the, uh, the, the Japanese-American, Asian-American leagues when he first started off at, when he was six. And my wife and I, we never grew up playing basketball. We were never part of that culture, so we had to learn everything. And um, when our son showed interest, uh, we just encouraged him to play, keep doing it, and and really, really encourage him to play basketball. But on the flip side of basketball, and probably with every other sports that are out there, maybe minus golf, um, we didn't know about all the injuries that you could accrue. In the short six years of playing basketball for Jenna, he's already broken his ankle. He's had three fractures in his arm and elbow, not to mention all the bruises and everything else that he had to go through. And every time we go to see his orthopedic doctor, they look at us like, hey, welcome back. Good to see you again. Has it been a year already? Oh, good to see you again, Jonah. But our doctor always reassures us this. He says, the bones will always heal. Not not only will it heal, but his bones will actually get stronger as he grows. You see, unless something is broken, you cannot rebuild it. Will you feel this in? True contentment cannot be learned unless something else is unlearned. Okay, let me say that one more time. True contentment cannot be learned unless something else is unlearned. You can't put on contentment without first taking something else out. Think of all the things that you want to replace in your house, whether that's your your, um, flooring, your walls, your furniture. You actually have to replace it to make it more functional, to make it look better. Pastor Tim Keller says, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, 
then it's your idol. We have to unlearn our idols. You have to take count of all the things that takes precedent in your life, in my life, that leads to discontentment. Here's the secret of contentment number two. Write this out. Avoid the comparison trap. Avoid the comparison trap. My parents, uh, they're immigrants from South Korea. Our family, we came here, uh, we came to L.A. back in the early 80s. And um, I grew up in the Korean-American church. Church actually became my second home, not by choice, but because my parents always went there every Sunday. And uh, the Korean church, the Korean-American church actually not only served as a place of worship, but it also served as a social hub for our first-generation immigrant parents. It was a place where they found community and identity, and all of that was solidified. When our first-generation parents came to the States, they worked hard. Due to language barriers, many of them ended up owning small businesses like uh, dry cleaners, liquor stores, and small mom-and-pop restaurants. They hustled to provide and make life better for their kids, like myself. While they worked, they wanted us to have good opportunities to go to school, to get an education, to get good grades, have good friends, and be successful and make something of ourselves. Everything, everything sounds great here, but it was a lot of pressure on us. I bet you heard the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, that whole phrase when you were trying to keep up with your neighbors or people around you and surrounding you. Well, we Koreans, we had our own phrase like that. We called it the keeping up with the Kims, the Parks, the Choi's, and the Lees. <laughs> our parents pushed us to be academically better than my friends David Park, David Lee, David Choi, and, <laughs> David, and uh, David Kim. Most of our parents had one day of week off, and on that seventh day, when that seventh day arrived, it wasn't just a day of Sabbath for them, but they, it was their bragging rights day. It was that time when they came together in church fellowships, they hung out with other friends in the circle, through fellowship times, small group times, and fundraisers, and they just loved bragging about us, of what we're doing in school, how well we're doing in school, where we're headed, and their dreams for us. It was really, really hard keeping up with the other Kims. It was a challenge. I don't know if you've seen this show. It's called uh, Kim's Convenience. It's a show, it's a Canadian sitcom depicting the Korean immigrant family experience. And um, there's a scene I want to show you where, where a bunch of ladies from church, they come together and they start talking about their kids. Take a look at this video. Mrs. Kim, how are your children? Oh, Jenny just get very high mark in the photography course. Yeah. Top of class. At college. Oh, so, not university? No, OCAD is university. Then why is it called Ontario College of Art and Design? I've heard OCAD's amazing. Yeah, very amazing. You get university degree, but also very practical. Jenna's so brave. It's hard to make a living as a photographer. But then again, where will we be without our starving artists? Who say Jenna's going to be starving? Maybe she has artists who eat and eat and eat. <laughs> but it's not fat artists. And don't you have a son? Yes. Working very hard. In a car rental agency. Handy car rental. Best car to rent. That's good to know. If our car ever breaks down. Oh, but my BMW is very reliable. Oh, you have a BMW? You never mention it. 
Haven't I? No, I don't think so. Oh, I have a BMW. <laughs> that was my life. <laughs> I love the passive-aggressive way of, of bragging with each other. It was tough. It was a competitive environment, and we were always compared with other kids. I bet you have your own stories of comparison, of stories of being compared as a kid. But you know what? Today, for some of us, our struggle with keeping up with the Joneses is at a new level. We're hustling more than ever just to catch up. Some of you even have side hustles. You're trying to find that side job or side projects. Now with social media, we compare our lives with others that we don't even know. We always wonder why others have such better lives than what I have. Because when you scroll through that social media feed, you're looking at other lives and you're saying to yourself, they're living my life. They have the house that I want. They have the type of marriage that I desire. Their kids are so much cooler than my kids. He's got my dream job. They're always traveling somewhere, and they're always going to nice restaurants. It never ends. This is why I call it a comparison trap. When we compare our lives with others, it traps and it binds us. When you're addicted to social media, there's an endless feed that takes you down this path where you are no longer looking at someone else's exciting life, but you end up looking at your own life. You end up looking at your own self. What others have becomes a reflection of what I don't have. How others live become a demise of your own being. Just a few months back, um, I found myself trapped in this own comparison trap through social media. I found myself being addicted to my device, and I realized it was affecting not only myself, but the people around me. So I decided to, to go on a social media cleanse. It's sad that we have to have, to have a term like that. I fasted social media for about 40 days. I deleted my Facebook app, my Instagram, my Twitter app. I think the only social media app I kept was my YouVersion Bible app. It was really, really tough at first. And I have to admit, about maybe the first two to three weeks going into it, I really asked this question, what's the purpose of my phone? What do I have this, to make calls or something? That's ridiculous. And after, after having gone through it, I came up with three reflections three things that I learned from this experience. One, I found myself comparing less. You see, before social media, my comparison circle wasn't that great. When I was comparing my life with others, it was either my friends, my family, and that's about it. And the thing was, I didn't see them every day. They didn't pop up at me every 30 minutes or every hour. So there's really nothing more to compare myself with. And number two, I found myself being more focused and engaged. I was more focused on the present, the present conversations, the present needs of, of my family and my work. Nicole here, she's our um, social media director here for our church. And she posts all the wonderful social media stuff for SBCC. And every week we, we have a meeting to just plan out for the week for our services. And she, in one of our meetings, she tells me, Caleb, man, you're really focused today. You have such great ideas. You're so engaging. This, this 
fast is really, really working for you. And I realized others were able to see the change in me. But the third realization that I came up with was probably the most important thing. After I finished this fast and I, when I slowly came back to social media, I realized that nobody cared whether I was gone or not. Nobody said to me, Caleb, I miss your posts. <laughs> Caleb, I miss you posting all your food pictures. I miss, you, I miss you bragging about your kids. And furthermore, no one's ever said to me, Caleb, I miss you liking my post. <laughs> That's never come up. No one cared. So why do we care so much? Why do we allow ourselves to get bogged down in this comparison trap? Because at the end of the day, it's not about what I don't have in comparison to what others have, but it's speaking to the condition of my own heart. When we compare, our heart becomes the object of our own affection. When I'm focused solely on myself and what I have and not have, I become my own enemy. There's nothing wrong with being competitive. I think competition is healthy. That pushes us to do better. But when that competition stands at the risk of losing your own soul, constantly leading towards discontentment, it becomes a war that I cannot win. James says this really well in chapter, James chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. This is what he says. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You're, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When we compare, we spend our passions on the things that please ourselves. You see, when we compare, not only does it divide our souls, but it could potentially divide others as well. Paul had a direct experience with this. He went through his own comparison trap. In Acts chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians, we are introduced to this gifted, gifted speaker by the name of Apollos. Apollos was a Jew who was described as eloquent, mighty in scripture, and fervent in the spirit. He was the, up, he was the next up-and-coming leader and a teacher in that church. And when a great leader surfaces, what happened? People follow that's what began happening in the church of Corinth. And soon, this following created a division within the church. And Paul addresses this issue head on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 11-13. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I, mean, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul reminds us over and over again that, that Christ does not divide us. Christ does not divide the church. Christ does not bring competition between one leader against another. Jesus does not divide the church. We do. And in that same way, Jesus does not uh, create division within our own heart. We do. We create our own divisions. It's the war within us that divides our contentment. 
This is why in Philippians chapter 4, 12, it is so important to know Paul's heart. Paul says it here, uh, I like this CSV version. He says, I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. Paul knew what it was like to enjoy the abundance when he had it and how to enjoy it when it was all gone. Especially in times of low with little, he was never stressed out about how to deal with the situation, but rather he learned how good and gracious and loving our Heavenly Father was. Let me tell you, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there will always be someone who is smarter than you, who has more money than you, who is healthier than you, who is more talented, who has a bigger house than yours, and who has more likes in their social media accounts. Don't fall into the comparison trap because when we get entangled in it, we find ourselves competing with our own selves where we could never win. If you want to end this cycle, I encourage you, learn to be grateful. The secret of contentment number three, seek gratitude. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says this. We read this earlier. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. When the church of Philippi learned of Paul's imprisonment, they sent him support. And many scholars believe that uh, this support was a form of a, a financial contribution. They also believe that the support actually came late. That's why in the second half of verse 4, um, he says what he says. You see, Paul is not calling them out for this late payment. It didn't matter whether the money came in on time or not. He was just grateful for their partnership in the gospel. He was thankful that the church remembered him, that he was on their minds, that they actually were thinking of him, praying for him, and supporting him all at the same time. Isn't it true when someone goes out of their ways for you, you're just grateful? That sense of gratitude is remember more than the, the gift that you receive. Even in, small, even in small gestures of support, the one on the receiving end is always grateful. Sometime last December, my family and I, we actually went to Starbucks to get some drinks. And um, we went through the drive-thru because we were in a hurry. Uh, we placed all the orders. You know, my wife got the latte, I got the iced coffee, and my two, I would say, grateful kids ordered frappuccinos, which costed more than anything else. <laughs> and then after we ordered, we, we, all dro- we drove up to the window, and the barista hands us our drinks. And I take out my phone to pay with my app. And as I'm about to pay, the barista tells us, sir, your order's already been paid for. He said, the car in front of us paid for all of our drinks. And I thought, what? Why? Why would he do that? And he said, I don't, I don't know. He just paid for all your drinks. And I thought, okay, this is December. This is when a lot of people are doing uh, pay it forward. You know, you know, you heard about that when, pe- when people pay for you because, you know, they're just grateful for that season and whatnot. I was so utterly surprised because I've heard of these stories before, but 
It's never, it's never happened to me before. And we're so grateful at that moment. More than the cup of coffee that I had in my hand, I was so grateful for that moment that someone who actually thought of us would pay it forward for us. And so we're about to drive off, and I realized, wait, I think I have to pay it forward for, for somebody behind us. I look back, and there's no cars. Like, thank God. And then we just ended up driving away. <laughs> Paul was grateful for the care he received from the people of Philippi. And Paul's gratitude actually goes wider than that. It wasn't just about being grateful when things were going well or when someone did something nice for him. How do we be grateful when things are going bad? Especially if you have to go through physical pains and sufferings and challenges. In verse 12 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul mentions that in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Focus on these five words, in any and all circumstances. I mean, I bet Paul's been through some good times in his life. I bet there were moments when he had plenty. But the more we read of Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, we were reminded of the challenges that he went through. And he's not shy to talk about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24-27, Paul lists out all the sufferings that he went through. Let me just read this for you because it's, it's actually painful to just read it. You just feel de- so depressed. Paul says this. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul learned contentment and he experienced contentment in the extremes of hunger to homelessness, to be beaten with rods, to be exhausted with intense humiliation. You see, Paul learned to be content in suffering only through suffering. He learned to be content in hunger after experiencing hunger. It's where he learned contentment through suffering. This is why Paul is able to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 10, he says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness became a source of strength. Why does Paul mention so much of his suffering? Sometimes when I read it, it's tiring, it's depressing. Because learning to be content in suffering leads to gratitude. He understands that contentment and gratitude actually go hand in hand. You can't be content when you are not grateful. And when you are not grateful, you are not content. Gratitude focuses on the good, the good God gives us regardless of our circumstances. Gratitude comes when contentment becomes a foundation for one's life. Just a few weeks back, the staff here at church received this really encouraging email from a a wonderful lady here. Peggy Malpe has been part of our SPCC family for a few years now. 
in the May of 2018, about a year ago, Peggy underwent open-heart surgery to repair her mitral valve. From what I've studied, the mitral valve is a valve that regulates blood from the upper uh, chamber into the lower chamber. It basically keeps, moving, uh, keeps blood moving throughout your heart. And during that time, uh, before she went into surgery, and during the surgery, we, we, as a church, we came together and we prayed for her. Her small group prayed for her. The staff prayed for her. And by the grace of God, uh, the surgery was successful. Peggy actually told me uh, this week that one of the hardest parts of this whole process wasn't about the surgery in itself, but it was about letting go and surrendering. That when she gave it up, she recognized the goodness of God in her life. We just love Peggy at our church. She's so encouraging, and she has so much enthusiasm and gratitude. As I mentioned just a few weeks back, Peggy emailed us with a heartwarming letter. And let me just read this to you to encourage you. She said, One year ago yesterday, I had open-heart surgery to repair my mitral valve. This past year has been filled with deep gratitude for restoration, healing, and time. I am forever thankful to God for walking with me through this journey, for praying friends who spoke into me when fear took hold, for my tribe who make every day a blessing, and for this day, I am humbled and so grateful knowing that every moment is a gift. Doesn't she sound like Paul here? Isn't it encouraging? No one asked her to write this letter, especially a year after the surgery. No one told her to do this. Peggy shared this with us because she was grateful for God's goodness in her life, even a year after her surgery. And just as Paul understood gratitude from a prison cell, waiting for his trial, reflecting on all of his sufferings, Peggy remembered God's goodness as she awaited before and after her open-heart surgery. This type of gratitude cannot be manufactured, and Peggy is a living proof of someone who understands that contentment and gratitude is inseparable. Will you feel this in? When we combine contentment and gratitude There's more awareness of God's goodness. There's more awareness of God's goodness. Because gratitude does not happen simply by having more. You cannot produce gratitude by willpower. You could sit on your couch and say, I am grateful a hundred times, a thousand times. And most likely nothing will change in your heart. So how do we learn gratitude? How do we understand gratitude? We are grateful when we witness God's goodness in our lives. Pastor John Orberg talks about how God has his own benefits package for us. You see, in Latin, the word good is called bene. Bene. Some of you know Cafe Bene. You've been there? I think that's where they get the the word from. Bene. He says, gratitude will always involve three key components of the benes. The first of the benes is where we get the word benefit. What's a benefit? Benefit is a gift. If you wish to experience gratitude, I need to receive a gift. I need to receive a benefit. I need to know that what I'm receiving is actually something good for me. 
I must find it likable. I must like what I'm receiving. In Psalm 103, uh, verses 2 to 5 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his what? Benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. Gratitude requires that what I receive is good and that it, it satisfies. But it doesn't end with the gift. Number two, in order for me to receive the benefit, there's got to be a benefactor. It's the one who does the good. It's the one who orchestrates the good. In order for me to be a grateful person, I must understand that the benefit don't come randomly. It doesn't, it doesn't happen by chance. But there's somebody that gives the benefit, that provides the gift. And scripture tells us that God is our benefactor. He's the giver of good gifts, the perfect gifts. James 1.7 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Not only is God good, but he gives good gifts. He's a good benefactor. Amen? Amen. But it doesn't end there. There's a third component to all of this. For there to be gratitude, there must be a benefit, the gift, the benefactor, the giver, but there's also got to be the beneficiary. It's the one who receives the gift. It's the one who receives the good. You know who that is? That's you and me. That's us. We are the beneficiaries of the benefits of a God who has our best interest at heart. We are the recipients of gifts by the giver who cares and who loves. We are God's beneficiary, and we are the one who receives the goods. And when we are grateful, we are more aware of God's presence in our lives. We become more aware of God's goodness. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lastly, here's a secret of contentment number four. Write this out. Be satisfied. If I were to put a cup here and um, pour some liquid down, if I pour this much, what do you see here? Do you see a glass that's half full or half empty? It's not a trick question. It's all about how you view your life, right? If you're an optimist, you see a glass that's half full. There's so much more potential. There's so much more to do. You know that one day the water's going to fill up. But when things are down, you, you have a positive outlook on life. You're an optimist. If you are in between jobs and you're looking for the next job, you know that one day, you're going to find that dream job. Not just any job, but a dream job. If you are financially tight, you know that one day you're going to find that financial freedom. If you are in a rocky place in your relationships, you know that with, you know that with a lot of work, you're going to get through it, and you have a positive outlook. You're an optimist. On the flip side of things, if you see the glass that's half empty, you're known as a pessimist. Now, pessimists have a bad rap. I get it, right? But 
I also see that pessimists are also very careful. They're very cautious of how they go about their lives. Sometimes they wonder, okay, what do, we, how do, what do we do to get the water filled? And then they ask this question, who's going to fill it? What if it overflows? Who's going to clean it up? All right? you, you're a lot more calculative about your life and how you pursue your life. Right? If you are in between jobs, you're going to do your best to work on that resume and do your due diligence to make sure that you can land somewhere. If you are financially tight, you're going to save as best as you can so that you will never go on debt again. If you are in a rocky place in your relationship, you're going to calculate everything that you're going through with your spouse or whoever that you're struggling through, and you're going to make a decision accordingly. Those are pessimists. Sometimes when we make decisions, we see it from here, from an angle where that's our glass is full, half full, or whether we see it from a glass that's half empty. You make life decisions depending on where you are. In our context today, I would even challenge that some of us here, when we see contentment, we make a decision whether to be content depending on how we see our life, from a glass that's half full or half empty. Where do you think Paul saw his glass? When we read scripture, Paul didn't see his life from a glass that's half full or half empty. If you read Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says, My God shall, will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in who? Christ Jesus. Paul viewed his life from here. This was his starting point. He didn't care about the whole metaphor of glass half full or half empty because for Paul, God has already supplied all of his needs according to who? His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's not wondering if he should view life from any place, but he's always starting from the top. That God has already supplied it for him. You see, in order for us to understand and appreciate Philippians chapter 4, 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We have to understand that God does not give us a strength from a flick of a finger. He gives us strength when we are content with him. Philippians chapter 4, 13 is not about chasing after your dreams, following your passions, accomplishing anything you want with God's help. Jesus is not your genie. Jesus is your Lord. And you can't expect him to deliver whatever you want, whenever you want it. Pastor John Piper coined this very famous quote. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are satisfied, when, when we start from here. Are you satisfied in him? Or are you always looking at your life from a glass that's half full or half empty? My wife and I, my wife Catherine and I, uh, have been married for about, gosh, a good 17 years now. 17 years, yes. Um, <laughs> she's not here tonight, so 
Um, don't tell her. Um, we've been married for about a good 17 years now, and um, within the first three years of our marriage, uh, we had our first child, Jonah, who you saw playing basketball, and uh, we were very, very occupied by this child, like every first-time parents would, right? And after Jonah had turned two, we really wanted a second child because we wanted Jonah to have a friend and a sibling. And um, as many parents do when they plan out uh, their kids, um, you don't want to spread them too far apart, right? You want to have them like every two, three years, maybe at max four years. We wanted the same, we wanted the same uh, process. And um, we wanted to have a sibling for Jonah, uh, but we just could not get pregnant. We, it was a struggle, uh, and at that time, it was about three years into uh, just trying, and she, she just couldn't get pregnant, and it was a really challenging. It was actually quite discouraging, um, and so, you know, we're just looking at different options, and uh, one of our friends told us about going through acupuncture process. Um, they actually went through that process, and they actually had twins. And so they're like, hey, I want to encourage you to try it out. You know, um, it's a good, maybe a good six-month process. Uh, you know, just try it out and see. You know, you, it never hurts. So we went through that process for about a good six months. Um, Catherine had to go to the acupuncture clinic and get, get all the things done. And, um, and we went through the whole process. And uh, it didn't work. Uh, we couldn't have a baby. And then someone else recommended, hey, have you heard of the Korean herbal tea medication, you drink this brown stuff, and it just tastes like dirt, but it's going to help you, you know? Uh, so we went through that process for another few months, and, we, and it's very expensive, right? They give you in a little box, and you just have to drink, like, multiple, uh, you know, bags every day, and, and we went through that whole process for about a few months. That didn't work either, and as we're going through all these different ways of trying to get pregnant, um, and time is just ticking, right? We're just, time is going... It's progressing, and we're into like three years, four years, and now we're in our fifth year. You know, there's a gap between my son and this baby that we want to have. And finally, um, when we're about to give it up, uh, Catherine heard of this special study for in vitro fertilization, which is IVF. And it was a free study uh, that they were offering for a certain, uh, certain moms that have gone through uh, a child already, and they couldn't conceive another. And Catherine actually fell into the, uh, their, that age bracket at that moment that they were looking for. So we went in, we did an interview, and she was like the perfect candidate for this. You know, those of you who went through IVF, you know how expensive you could get, right? It's, it's very costly, and um, they offered it to us for free. So, hey, it's free. Let's just give it a try. And at the same time, when we started the IVF process, we also decided to, as a family, myself, my wife, and our son Jonah, to go on a mission trip together. And at that time, our church, my old church, was sending a medical team to Mongolia, and they wanted a pastor to go and to just lead the team. Um, as Catherine was going through this whole IVF process, uh, it was very tiring. Uh, the clinic was in Sherman Oaks. We live in San Gabriel Valley, and so we had to go there like twice a week, and Catherine's taking these hormonal shots every day, and it, it was just very draining physically, and emotionally, and it was just very, very tiring. And it was kind of stressful at that time because we were about to leave from Mongolia, and, and she was at the end of that trial and the, the whole process, and um, 
we wanted to find out if she w was pregnant or not, whether she conceived or not. And, and we wouldn't have found out until we got to Mongolia. So we're a little antsy, we're a little, you know, scared and, and also hopeful at the same time. And then we left on our trip. And the day we got there, the first morning we got to Mongolia, we found out that um, Catherine wasn't pregnant. It didn't work out. And so, so we just looked at each other and we just said, you know what, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. And that morning, we had a chance to go to the church that was hosting us and we were in a prayer meeting and we're just praying together. And as I'm praying, I'm reflecting on what's been happening. And um, I just gotta tell you this. I, I don't hear God's voice very audibly. I hear God's voice through his word and through prayer, but like I don't hear God saying, Caleb, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not the Moses type, right? I don't hear that very often. But this time, for some reason, as we're praying, I'm just praying, I hear this question in the back of my mind asking, what about me? What about me? And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> stop, you know, I thought it was Satan at first, right? Like, stop talking to me this way. But I just kept hearing this voice. What about me, Caleb? What about me? At that moment, I realized God was asking us this question. Where was I in your process? Were you ever even thinking about fitting me into your timeline? Where was I when you decided to go on that acupuncture treatment? Where was I when you drank that nasty Korean medicine? Where was I when you actually made a decision to go through IVF? Where did you include me in this process? Where was I in your life, Caleb? Where was I? And it was such a huge revelation at that moment. And everyone else is done in our team praying. I'm just crying and wailing. I'm just saying, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for not letting you in in this process. This is your child. This is your baby. I'm so sorry for not being content in you. And I remember other missionaries coming like, what's going on? What's going on? And, and uh, we, we shared our story and we all cried together. And that was day one of our trip. And, uh, and it was a wonderful trip for about a good two weeks. Fast forward, we came back from this trip um, and about a month or two after we found out that Catherine was pregnant, naturally, naturally. Now, the moral of the story is not if you're content, God's going to provide this for you. If you don't have a baby, if you, just be content with Christ. He's going to do it. That's not where I'm hitting at because I got to tell you, when we repented before the Lord in Mongolia and we we're just praying, God, I'm so sorry for letting you, not letting you in, we were content at that moment saying to ourselves, you know what, if God doesn't provide with a child, we're fine. God is still good at the end of the day and we're going to do our best to live our lives for him because we want to start from here and not there. God is so faithful, isn't he? I want to encourage you, when you think about this verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It doesn't happen by a snap of a finger. It's only when you find contentment in Christ that you find that strength. Amen.
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for reminding us, Lord, that, uh, that you want to be part of the process in our lives. So often we look for contentment in other areas, uh, whether it's our neighbors, our friends, social media, or whatnot. We, we, we struggle so hard to find that joy in other things. But Lord, uh, you remind us uh, through the Apostle Paul that uh, the contentment comes when we are able to be content in Jesus and Him and Him alone. That our God is the one who supplies all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Lord, may that be true of us. May we not just say those words or those verses because it sounds good, but Lord, may it convict us each and every moment that in order for us to find strength in Christ, that we have to find contentment in Him first. God challenges today, and Lord, speak your word of truth into us today and every day as we live this life for you. We thank you, and it is in the name of Jesus we all prayed. Amen.